Welcome to this BTOG podcast. My name's Helen McDill and I'm a respiratory registrar training in the Southwest uh, Peninsula Deanery. Uh, and I'm also the respiratory trainee representative on the BTOG British Thoracic Oncology Group Steering Committee. This is part of our regular podcast series entitled BTOG Does, where we have informal chats with experts in their field and tackle some of the most important questions we all face in the diagnosis and treatment of thoracic cancers. Before we start, it's important for me to say that sponsors of BTOG do not have any role whatsoever in their planning, content or delivery of anything discussed. So today's podcast is BTOG does lung cancer screening, and it's a huge pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Emma O'Dowd today. Uh, welcome, Emma. Thank you. Uh, Emma's uh, a respiratory consultant at Nottingham University uh, Hospitals NHS Trust. Uh, she's been awarded a PhD in lung cancer epidemiology and her research interests are lung cancer screening, early diagnosis and epidemiology of lung cancer. She's also a member of the National Cancer Research Institute screening prevention and early diagnosis group. So no one really in a better position to kind of talk about lung cancer screening today. Um, we've given Emma the slightly impossible task of trying to summarise everything in this 20-minute podcast today. Um, so I guess to start off, Emma, uh, given what we know about lung cancer, why is it so important to detect lung cancer early and hence think about screening? Um, so I think as everyone who's listening is probably aware, um, most patients with lung cancer are diagnosed when they've actually got advanced disease, so um, treatment with a cure um, isn't possible. So um, we know, though, that when we can diagnose patients early, actually um, almost nine in 10 will survive for one year compared with around um, one in five um, who are diagnosed at, at stage four. So um, it's crucial to try and get people diagnosed at the earliest stage because actually the outcomes are just so much better. And I think, like you said, anyone who does lung cancer, we know that from, from clinical practice. Um, we now have kind of three large RCT lung cancer screening trials. Um, for anyone who's kind of not familiar with, with the trials, um, could you kind of summarize the key headline messages and kind of what this means for screening in the, the UK? I know that's not, not easy to summarize quickly given the extent of these trials. In, in, in a sentence. Um, so essentially the, the, largest, uh, the largest trial is an National Lung Screening Trial, which was um, um, in the US, and that was actually published um, over 10 years ago um, now. Um, and that showed over 20% um, lung cancer mortality reduction. Um, and it also showed um, uh, over 6% all-cause mortality reduction, which is the first screening trial to show an all-cause mortality reduction. Um, there have then subsequently been some smaller trials, um, the largest of which is the Nelson trial, which is um, it's a Dutch-Belgian um, trial which published um, a couple of years ago now so just before the, the pandemic um, and again showed um, a 26% um, lung cancer mortality reduction um, just to say that trial was predominantly done in men so that's a male reduction there's there's a suggestion from the very small amount of women in that trial that there might be um, an even bigger advantage um, to women um, from screening um, and I think that the third trial that you're you're talking about is the UK um, lung screening trial, which um, was a pilot um, trial. Um, again, that's published fairly recently. Um, it, was, it was a small trial, it was a pilot, as I said, so it didn't show a significant reduction, but certainly a trend towards um, lung cancer mortality reduction, which has been shown by all of the other trials. 
Um, and they've also been at a lot of European trials, again, which are all smaller, but I think everything is sort of moving in the in the same direction as the larger, better powered trials to suggest that, that we can reduce lung cancer mortality, certainly with screening. Uh, it certainly sounds like kind of the evidence is, is out there now for, for us to be, be implementing it. Um, I guess one of the things I'd kind of picked up from the, the, the UK um, screening trials and, and pilots um, is that we were using multifactorial risk prediction models, uh, which I know some of the, the bigger trials, the Nelson trial, uh, ha hadn't used. That was just based on age and kind of smoking pack history. Um, and the Liverpool Lung Project uh, kind of model seems to be the one commonly used, and I know that's something you, you've kind of researched. Um, kind of what's the importance, do you think, of the utilisation of, of these models and the thresholds we use within our screening programmes with, within the UK? Um, so I think it's it's quite complicated. Um, most trials, as you said, have used age um, and smoking pack year criteria, but actually that can sometimes be quite blunt in terms of including people. So um, certain subsequent work has shown that these risk prediction models, um, which often augment your age and smoking status with more detailed smoking data, um, COPD, asbestos exposure, for example, um, are, are a little more sensitive in terms of identifying um, people. Um, you've mentioned the, the Liverpool um, Lung Project um, version two, which is what's being used. It's just been updated um, to version three, which makes not not too much difference and um, there's also an, another model which um came from the prostate lung um, and colorectal ovarian cancer screening um trial so called the plco model which is used um a lot more outside um the uk um i think the challenge is we know that sometimes these models can select slightly more older and more comorbid people but certainly we were able to refine our selection better using those models and um, so we can try and improve cost effect and um, the screening um, but what we don't know is what threshold to use for a model which model to use um, and lots of pilots and trials if we look at them at the moment are actually using all of them um, and including anyone who meets any of those um, predefined thresholds in a model so I think a lot of work is ongoing now to try and determine how best to actually identify patients for screening um, and obviously it's slightly more complex using a model. So it's, it's less simple to, you, you often have to talk to people to be able to run a model, whereas age and smoking, you can potentially run in, in primary care software as a sort of blunt tool. So it, it might be that we end up with a two-step approach in the UK where we use primary care software to identify smokers of a certain age, and then we try and refine using a model. Okay, uh, thanks. That kind of summarises what's a really complicated uh, area, I think, when you're reading uh, about it. Um, so I think you've really nicely kind of summarised the headline uh, benefits of lung cancer screening. Uh, and I guess a really important side is to consider the, the harms and downsides uh, of, of screening uh, as well. Um, I guess the main thing uh, if you go to any screening talk that I've always heard is the, the concern of, of overdiagnosis. Um, ha have the trials sh shown, shown that? Is, something, is that something we need to be, be worried about? Um, I think actually the initial publications certainly raised concerns about overdiagnosis, but I think as what you normally need to look at overdiagnosis is a longer period of follow-up. Um, so the National Lung Screening Trial has published 10 years follow-up now, um, and their overdiagnosis um, rate looks like it's only just above 3%. Um, and that's, I think we can reduce that further because that's mostly people who've got slow-growing adenocarcinomas. Um, so actually, if we can have quite good surveillance and monitoring of the pure ground glass 
nodules in particular, we can probably reduce overdiagnosis to be really, really minimal. And um, do we have much, I guess, UK data? I think there's been a, a kind of a trial published in the, in the last year by, by uh, one of the groups um, kind of along that theme of overdiagnosis measuring, I guess, more importantly, false positive rates uh, and kind of then proceeding on to invasive tests and, and benign surgical resection uh, rates as, as well to know how much of a consequence that that could play as part of screening. Yeah, so um, so you're right. There was some um, something published um, towards the end of last year, which was led by um, Haval Balata in Manchester, um, and that uh, what that showed is that was pooled data of over eleven thousand um, participants in um, UK pilots and trials, um, and they showed really a false positive rate um, of only two percent um, in in these trials, um, and actually a benign resection rate of um, just above four percent. Um, and if we compare that to the the NLST and the Nelson trial, they were they were a sort of twenty three and twenty four percent benign resection rates. Um, so I think in the real world, if you follow again your nodule management protocols, if you if you use the the BTS risk assessment and you actually use percutaneous biopsy, well, you can minimise harms and um, any harms from a, a over over diagnosis and over investigation of these patients, basically. So I, I, th I think kind of um, it all sounds really reassuring in terms of kind of the, the, the harms that we're going to see coming from screening are going to be minimal is what the real world data is telling us uh, so, so far. Um, into, I guess one of the important aspects, which I'm not quite sure how, how these pilot trials have addressed is the psychological in, impact of, of screening, which is such an important aspect when we're potentially going to be screening so many people. Um, have you had much experience with kind of, of how this has been addressed or thoughts about how we, how we do address this? Yeah, I think, um, again, people thought there would be a massive um, psychological um, impact and harm um, from screening, but um, UKLS have published um, some data um, which showed that actually um, the psychological harm was only increased in people who had a positive screen and it was only really at the immediate point after they had a positive screen and that's actually understandable I mean if you've been told your scan is worrying you're obviously going to have a level of psychological harm um, and also the National Lung Screening Trial did some work at looking at one and six months um, after um, screening um, and again showed that um, health related quality of life wasn't reduced and there wasn't really increased anxiety so I think if you have a well-run program and a well-informed participant actually probably psychological harm is is pretty minimal. Great and I guess that's kind of le leading into a little bit of what I, I wanted to talk about next and um, obviously the data shows this say it saves lives. Where in the UK are we now for kind of, I guess, non-respiratory physicians out there who might not be as, as familiar with, as yourself um, with the programmes? Uh, what, what's been implemented uh, in the UK currently uh, off the, the back of these trials and with NHS England? Um, so we still have some trials ongoing. So there's two trials, one in Yorkshire um, called the Yorkshire Lung Screening Trial and um, a large trial in London um, called the Summit Trial, um, which is looking at biomarkers as well as um, screening. We've got lots of these local um, demonstration pilots. People have probably heard about Liverpool, Manchester, um, a variety of areas. Um, and then there's NHS England funded um, targeted lung health check programme. Um, which is aiming to recruit um, people aged between 55 and 75 um, who've ever been a smoker um, and inviting them to, to what's called a lung health check, 
um, which has a variety of things. It, it did have spirometry prior to the uh, the pandemic, but that's mostly been on hold now because of the concern um, with COVID. Um, but they still get um, smoking cessation, which is key. Um, we have to integrate smoking cessation in, and they also get a risk assessment. Um, so similar to what we spoke about before. And if they meet a threshold, they will be offered um, a low dose um, CT scan for screening. Um, and actually, the really good news is that's been rolled out even further this year. So there are more and more sites coming on board. And um, so I think almost every trust is probably going to have patients who are going through some form of screening and um, feeding into their lung cancer MDTs in the next sort of 12 to 24 months. Great. And I don't know if, if you know, um, I guess I'm kind of on the periphery of the conversations as the trainees hearing about kind of consultants talking about these targeted lung health health check programs has NHS England rolling them out like you said in, in every trust and then it's kind of at the discretion of the trust how that happens or is they quite set guidelines about the key aspects uh, of, of that so it's actually run in the community so it's predominantly through CCGs um, with buy-in from the trust so obviously the clinicians at the trust have to understand that they may see an increase in in referrals particularly through nodule services um, and those CCGs initially were those CCGs which had high lung cancer incidence and poorer outcomes, but, at the, but there's been a, an ever-increasing rollout. Um, so, so I think that's certainly building the evidence base um, for screening, which hopefully will then um, inform a decision from the UK National Screening Committee about a nationally run programme, because clearly these, these are still being run in CCGs. They, they do have to adhere to a national protocol, and there is a national steering group who are overseeing these targeted lung health check programmes, so hopefully we won't get too much variability in the way things are reported and the way things are managed because there is a nationally mandated protocol that they are supposed to be following. And I guess thinking about all the, the extra things, kind of the targeted lung health chest is going to generate. Um, I know you mentioned kind of spirometries uh, uh, was previously, but, but not now, but about smoking cessation as well. Ha, ha, how within the hospitals and I guess our respiratory radiology infrastructure are we going to manage to deal with all the other things this generates as, as well um I guess nodule management incident yeah. uh, kind of all the incidental findings as well um do you, are there kind of structures out there to cope how are we going to cope with it all yeah, so, so I think clearly when you do a CT scan, you don't just look at the lungs. So there will always be incidental um, findings. And we know that actually lots of the trials um, that were published were very bad at managing incidental findings and they did a lot of unnecessary investigations and a lot of referrals. Um, if you look at um, a subset of the Nelson trial, um, I think they said 73% of people had non-clinically relevant incidental findings. Um, so if we're going to prevent psychological harm from over-investigation if we're going to be cost-effective and not basically flood our downstream services. We do need to be very careful um, and clear about what needs to be investigated, what needs to be reported and what um, potential benefits there are as well. So for example, um, cardiovascular um, disease, you could put people on primary prevention and um, mm -hmm. so reduce harm from that. Um, but if, if you look at the targeted lung health check program, there's a very clear protocol which has incidental finding management um, and the significance of all of those findings um, spelt out. And there's also an ERS, um, a European Respiratory Society document and task force that's underway at the moment to try and get a pan-European incidental findings document produced. So hopefully, again, if we can use evidence-based management, we'll be able to minimise the downstream effects. 
okay, great. Uh, but I guess also an ever-growing need for lung cancer, uh, respiratory physicians and thoracic radiologists as well to help absorb this um, work. Yeah, I mean, I think workforce is a, is a whole other, other discussion that you can have, and I think it's going to affect every diagnosing and treating specialist. And certainly, yeah, there does need to be an, an expansion in, in workforce um, or, or a look at more novel solutions like reporting radiographers, AI, all of those sorts of things to try and at least help the radiologists. And I, I don't know if you know this, has there been much use of AI within the lung cancer kind of screening cohort so far, or it's not really something that's been used? Um, so there's computer-aided detection that's um, being used to sort of at least try and do a, a nodule volumes and try and um, look at those. There are other technologies out there um, looking at lung cancer um, risk prediction, but very much that's still in trials and waiting um, approval um, so there are softwares out there that can help make the nodules be read a bit more efficiently. But again, it's one of the other things that the radiologists will still need to, to look at. Yeah, so still a huge need for our thoracic radiology uh, colleagues. Um, I guess one of the, the challenges um, I've kind of heard about, so particularly the Manchester group talk about, and think when I think about a kind of approaching lung cancer screening is, I guess, participation and engagement. Um, and I spoke to Mac Everson about tobacco addiction last week, which I guess is a whole different topic of how we engage. Um, but how, how do we engage people in lung cancer screening? Has that been a problem in, in the trials and how do we kind of envision that moving forwards as well um, people get an invitation to come for screening but how do we encourage them to, to take it particularly when often our patients are from the poorer end of society with kind of a social economic deprivation um, and they're the ones who need our, our help the most yeah you're right and probably similar to what Matt was saying is that we know that for every use of healthcare, people from the most socially deprived group and smokers tend to to take it up the least and that's very relevant for all of the other screening programs as well and um, and the concern certainly for lung cancer screening is that that's those are the people we really want to be coming forward and um, it's perhaps less of a problem in the breast screening program um, there's a lot of nihilism there's a lot of stigma and I think there's a lot of worry that people are going to be judged um, when they come forward and um, we know that about half of the UKLS um, people who were surveyed um, said that they had concerns about traveling for scans because of um, the cost of transport because of comorbidities that made it difficult um, and certainly Manchester and lots of the other um, areas have, have tried to co-locate their scanners um, in the communities where people are to try and um, improve uptake um, there's been looking at having maybe drop-in sessions um, but we know that from other screening programs if you have a pre-booked appointment that sometimes can mean that you're a bit more likely um, to turn up um, pre-invitation letters GP um, invites and endorsement um, and probably the use of social media for some groups but I think it's it's a real um, it certainly was a concern in the US and we know that in the US the uptake is still very poor um, I think the um, American College of Radiology survey suggested that a few years ago only 2% of those that were eligible had actually been screened, but actually that's not a nationally mandated programme and it doesn't really have as much Q, QI as we would hope um, that a programme would have in the UK. And I think that the data from London from the lung screen uptake trial was much more reassuring, so they had much higher uptake and I think lots of areas are seeing that people are really wanting to come forward so I, I would hope that although the data from the US are, are not very reassuring that we might be able to, to use some strategies in the UK to try and maximise uptake. 
And I guess as we roll out our targeted lung health checks, uh, that is all going to be a learning curve of, of how we adapt and, and develop things. And I guess that's what NHS England and the screening groups will be feeding into the, the screening programme uh, through that process, I assume. Yeah, and, and I hope that as as people in community see someone, you know, their neighbour or someone across the road who's actually had a very positive experience, um, then hopefully those attitudes about lung cancer just being a, a diagnosis that is not worth having because there aren't any treatments. And that's what people do say um, will change and we'll, we'll get a lot more endorsement and engagement um, in screening. Great. Um, I guess kind of nicely leading on to that, uh, what, just to finish, what would your kind of key take home messages to everyone about lung screening in 2022 in the UK being again a broad question to, to <laughs> on you for um, I'm not making it easy um, for you sorry no, no. Um, so I think it's quite scary that it's been 20 years this year since the first patient was recruited into um, the NLST trial and actually although we've taken some steps towards um, lung cancer screening what I hope in 2022 is that we're going to take much bigger steps um, because it's clear that lung cancer screening is effective and I think we've shown that lots of the concerns are actually relatively unfounded or can be managed well so um, I think we need to really continue to push and advocate for a community as a community to keep screening as a top priority because um, for our patients it's the key way that we're going to be able to reduce lung cancer mortality and um, lung cancer is not going away so we need to be able to do the best for our patients to get them diagnosed as early as possible. Thank you so much, Emma. Um, I think certainly as a trainee wanting to kind of specialise in thoracic oncology, I think it's such an exciting, interesting area. Um, and hopefully, like you said, it can change the landscape of lung cancer diagnosis and, and treatment for, for our patients and take that, that stigma away. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Uh, I hope that's given you an insight into to lung cancer screening. Uh, and thank you to Emma for taking the time today to, to do that. Uh, for more information on BTOG, um, including educational events, including more on lung cancer screening uh, and other events, and more importantly, how you can join BTOG, uh, you can visit at www.btog.org. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs>